0: Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support the independent financial advisor community because they believe that every firm of every size deserves a custodian that is committed and passionate, one that provides world-class resources, technology, and people who thoroughly understand your firm's goals, one that will work tirelessly to give you the winning edge. Hello, and welcome to RIA Edge. I'm Mark Bruno, Managing Director in the Wealth Management Group at Informa Connect. And I am very much looking forward to this episode of RIA Edge today. Delighted that we have Megan Gorman, the founder and managing partner of Checkers Financial Management, a female-owned high net worth tax and financial planning firm in San Francisco, California. Megan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to being on today.
0: We are looking forward to talking about Marketing and branding, and lots of other things, with you here today. I know you've been on some of our other podcasts here at wealthmanagement.com, including the Dead Celebrities podcast. But this is a little bit different because we're going to talk much more about the RIA business. And as we do here on RIA Edge, we're focused really on one thing: growth. A lot of the podcasts that we have done have talked about M and A and how some of the best firms in the business are growing through merger and acquisition strategies but it's really important to talk about the other side of the growth equation which is organic growth so today Megan thank you for joining us we are very excited to learn more about how you've become one of the fastest growing and most successful RIA firms in the business and really more than anything how you've done you know, the job that you have establishing yourself and your firm as a really elite brand in the RIA industry before we get into the specifics in your strategy I think looking at your bio last week, you're sort of the Swiss army knife, right? Within the RIA industry, there's very little that you can't do. But would you mind just giving a brief background on your history and an overview of checkers and what you do there?
1: Yeah, yeah. First of all, I'm going to steal that going forward. <laughs> I'd like to say I try to be a renaissance woman, but it's funny because I've been in the RIA world for about six and a half years, but this is really sort of the third reinvention of myself. So just a little bit of background. I like to say I'm just a girl from South Jersey. I'm from Cape May, New Jersey. And I really did not intend on going into financial services, tax. I mean, the fact that I'm in this job or this role today is sort of surprising to me. But as I've talked about a lot, I stumbled upon tax in law school. And it was one of those aha moments where it clicked, and I understood the puzzles, but what I learned over the years from that is it's not just important to be able to understand things like finance and tax, but I'm also really skilled at being able to explain it to people. And so in law school, everybody was going to firms and I debated what to do, but I ended up going with a company that, and you were talking about M&A that subsequently was acquired by Goldman Sachs. It was a firm called The ACO Company. And I was there for the first 11 years of my career. And it was great because when I first got into that role, I learned financial counseling from a very, I want to say pure standpoint and a very analytical standpoint. And that's going to be important in my story because being analytical is something that I think is incredibly important. So spent about 11 years there. I got moved out to California by them. And then I wanted to try something different. I wanted to get a different experience. And so I did briefly go to a bank, Bank of New York Mellon, for two years and had a different experience. But like a lot of people who are RIAs, I got to a point where, for better or for worse, there were a lot of benefits being in a corporate construct but I was getting to that point where I was like, I'm not so good in that corporate formality. I want to be able to dabble and do different things and be nimble and speak publicly and drive how you know clients should be treated. And I think it was a, it was actually a series of men who kept saying to me, why don't you just have your own firm? And I think I bring this up because I think it's one of those things that women don't always automatically go to. right. So six and a half years ago, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I jumped and I launched Checkers. And it's been a wild ride since then. I've learned a lot, gotten quite a lot of gray hair. But I have to say the biggest regret I have in all of it is that I didn't do it sooner. I wish I had gone out on my own. And I say this because I know the theme of your podcast is growth. And it is growth of an IR, RIA, but a lot of it is also your growth emotionally, psychologically, career-wise in becoming who you want your career to be a, like about and who you want to be in your career. Because we're all the heroes of our own story, but I really feel going out on my own sort of really allowed me to embrace that.
0: And I think that is very helpful in drawing a straight line to what we'd like to talk about in a little bit more detail here today. I I say marketing, but it's much more than that. It's your brand. And that's one of the things about being an RIA that is such a huge advantage for some. You really do have the opportunity to market yourself, to brand yourself and position yourself however you might like. Flip side of that is there are a lot of people who've started their own RIA firms and they're really good at giving advice. They're really good at managing money but they are notoriously awful marketers. And maybe they've been successful because they've been able to get referrals over the years. They've grown the business really well. But as you think about that next wave, that next stage of growth, I should say, marketing and organic growth will be so important. So I'd love to just start there, Megan. A lot of advisors really think that they're good marketers, right? Because they're, well, to be blunt, just doing some marketing, right? But for an RIA, in your view, what does really good marketing look like?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Marketing is something we're all told we have to do. Right. And so you're right. Some people just throw spaghetti against the wall to see if it sticks. Right. And if it works, great. But if not, they can check the box that they did it. But I think the thing that I always think about is just because you see someone spending a lot of time on marketing, it doesn't mean it always translates to client success. And there are times I see people on Twitter or on the internet or or doing something where I'm like, hmm, I don't know if I feel that's productive. So here's how I look at it. And I would challenge anyone who wants to improve their marketing to think about it, which is we work in an industry that people are incredibly cynical about. And the reasons why, I mean, there's a ton of reasons, right? You know, how we're compensated, hidden fees, there's potential conflicts how we're portrayed in the media, right? And so when you've got this sort of industry with the cynicism and and no one really really likes us, we're now required to go market and want to make people come feel welcomed by this. So I say this because what I think is really good marketing, especially in the RIA space, is... If you love the client engagement, if you love the analytics and the real deep planning and the getting people to the right space, the best marketing is truly about education. When we get clients, they don't know what basis points are. They don't know what bond amortization is or Monte Carlo analysis. I mean, some do, but most of them are hearing these concepts for the first time. And we toss these terms around like it's nothing. So to me, good marketing is really finding the moments to educate potential clients and clients about the space and how the space works, why it works that way. And it's using vehicles like Zoom webinars or Twitter or TikTok or whatever your, your flavor is to do it. But to me, it's about education. And I'm going to say one last thing about that, which is we're at an interesting inflection point. In, the, in financial literacy in this country. Americans, and particularly from the COVID-19 crisis, have shown they want education. They need education. The politicians are aware, you know, you're seeing legislation come through various states. But the beauty of us in the RI space is giving financial literacy, giving financial education is something that is the right moment to do it. It's the right thing to do. And for most of us, we can do it and we can go to people and really, truly help them and get them to the right space.
0: I think a lot of what you've just mentioned is, of course, the truth, but it's also not something that everyone is sort of saying in the same way. You're very authentic in what it is that you're saying, how you deliver yeah, you know, your message and more specifically what the problems are that you can solve, right, for your specific clients. So I think when I talk about marketing, maybe it's not advertising, right? Maybe it's not even the brand, it's the voice, right? Is the word that I think is so important for people in the RIA community to think about when they are marketing themselves. See, I am curious, you know, can you maybe spend a couple of minutes? And let us know how, when you first started thinking about marketing, which is so much more than just, you know, advertising, you do a ton of social media, you write blogs and articles, you've been in advertising, you've been on podcasts, you're creating an incredible amount of content, but it's all in your very specific and unique voice. So could you talk a little bit about, especially coming into a, a largely male industry and profession, how did you think about positioning and establishing your voice at first?
1: I'd love to say that I had this like master plan and I've (laughs) on it perfectly, but that's not the case. I think the thing is like a lot of us, I knew I wanted to have a voice in the space, right? And you have to, to think about the segments that we all work with. In the segment I work with, which is high net worth, ultra high net worth, having a voice is less common. And that's because that group, the wealthy group, they don't hire... Based on a public profile, focused on things such as status and access or personal referral. But for me, having a voice was really important, and I I went into it with the basic premise that I was it was not going to be profitable for me, right? And but I wanted to do it because I knew it was something I would I would find challenging. And I would personally enjoy. And I say that just because I think about when I do podcasts and webinars. And there is a part of me that still is slightly terrified as I do it. But I also like the growth I've gotten out of it. The other thing I think is in developing a voice, You know, we are in a male-dominated industry. But I find being a woman in this industry a huge competitive advantage. I can say things that the guys can't say. Now, you could argue that they could say things I can't say, but I can get away with pushing the envelope more in developing a voice or even working with clients.
0: So what would be an example, just out of curiosity, so we can bring that to life, if you don't mind, please?
1: Yeah, when I over the course of COVID, I did a number of webinars for women's groups, and in particular, focusing on the Paycheck Protection Program and other segments of the CARES Act. And a lot of the discussion was basically... Look, if you are going to be a business owner, and it was a lot of women who were self-employed, had their own business, were Schedule C filers, and yet they didn't have books, or they didn't have a separate bank account, or they didn't have a credit card, or they didn't track their expenses. And there is a point where it's like, ladies, if you really, truly want to be there financially, you've got to do this. You have to play the game. And being a passive, oh, poor, I'm a poor little girl routine, that doesn't cut it if you're going to be in the game. And so I'm not. And, and the thing is, I root for people. I love working with people. I love making them better. I do feel when I work with a lot of the women's groups, I get a lot of women who say, I'm not comfortable with the money. I'm not comfortable doing this. And it's look, you got to be you got to get there. So I, I don't know if that gives you the right context, but that's mm-hmm. something that I, I, I feel comfortable having a voice about when I work with people.
0: No, and it's a good example. It's an excellent example because it also shows how you're not stretching to talk about things that are too general or outside of maybe your core expertise and maybe things that might be you know, more broadly engaging, right? You're talking about things that are very specific to your expertise, but more importantly, to the needs of a potential. And I think, you know, that that's one oh, of the...
1: But by the uh, way, I'll say with that is, is that sometimes I like to be the voice for others, because I wish I had had that voice in my ear. Does that make sense?
0: It sure does, definitely. And you know what they don't know, right? And especially around you, know, the Paycheck Protection Program. If you've devoted the time you know, way back in 2020, which feels like a decade ago at this stage, to really understand the nuances and the practical applications, and it's a huge benefit just to you know, connect with you on a webcast. I think from there, it demonstrates just how much more value you can deliver if you actually had a. An advisory relationship. So I think it's perfect. I also, I'm curious, so just to kind of go back, you mentioned when you first started to establish your voice, that you, it wasn't like you just turned the key and all of a sudden, there you go. But as you started to experiment with some marketing, PR, as you created your own content, what did you learn along the way? And how did the way you position yourself evolve over time?
1: I will tell you, I felt I floundered for a long time. I still feel like I flounder. And I say that because being, I'm one of those extroverted introverts, right? When I've done all the personality testing, I'm always right on the line. I like to be private. I don't like to like just spout my opinions on Twitter. And so this was forcing me to do that, right? So then when you get into the space, so first of all, I've got that sort of, Conflict going on internally with me every time I hit tweet or every time I post something on Instagram or say something. But I think the other thing was when I got out there, you know, I realized there were a ton of voices out there and they all have platforms, whether they're blogging or they're, you know, writing for a a publisher or YouTube or, or Twitter or podcasts. And what I realized was in the beginning, I was trying to play the same game as everybody else. And I realized early on, I was struggling with giving some of the advice because it's not the space that I work in. And I'm saying this factually, not from a snobby aspect, but more about the fact that I had to do some soul searching because, you know, me giving advice on don't buy that latte. That's just not what I do day to day with people. I work on very strategic, tax-oriented, estate-oriented type work with very wealthy individuals. And I got to a point after doing about a year or two where I'm like, I can't be speaking in a voice that's not the voice I work in every day. I really need to be speaking if it's something that a client would read, they would be like, yes, of course, Megan would say this. She would say this in a meeting. So there's a Catherine Hepburn quote I love. And Catherine Hepburn went to Bryn Mawr, as did I. And it's, if you always do what interests you, at least one person is pleased. And I say that because I have decided, probably in the last two years, to focus on the things that excite me, that make me passionate. And for instance, in 2020, I made two big decisions on my voice that I felt it would help me in all aspects of being a public persona. And that is, one, I wanted to teach estate planning at at law school, and two, I wanted to be... And I did get elected to the Board of Trustees for the National Endowment for Financial Education because I do believe financial literacy is a political issue. And so that really helped me because then it sort of pushed me out of my comfort zone, but in the area in which I'm typically advising it. So the word authentic, and I know you used it earlier, so I apologize Mm -hmm. for saying this, but I think the word authentic is overused. But I do think if you're going to market using your voice, you have to figure out who your voice is and really be true to it. And don't try to compete with all the TikTokers and the the Instagram stars who are doing personal finance if that's not who you are. And if it is who you are, first of all, that's amazing. I'm envious of that skill set, but do what's true to you. And I think that's where you get more success in, in that type of marketing.
0: I think it's helpful. One of the main takeaways from what you just shared, Megan, was I've seen you on Twitter and I've heard you on podcast. but the way you described yourself as you know, the introvert slash extrovert, I, I think you know, a lot of advisors can identify with that. And the fact that you're anxious right, before you hit tweet makes it clear that it's okay to feel that way. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, right? You should just be, thoughtful and comfortable with what it is that you're sharing. So thank you for just being candid and sharing that experience. One question I do have, though, just to kind of get to the point, at what stage, right, so you found your voice and understanding it's still a work in progress, but you've really started to multiply, doing lots of media, doing lots of conferences. Was there a moment or a particular point in time where you knew it was clicking and it was working the way you wanted it to?
1: I think you go through waves right? You'll do a bunch of stuff and then all of a sudden you get invited to be on a podcast or go speak somewhere or write something and you're like, oh, people are listening. And then it will be quiet for a while, right? And then it happens again. So I think describing it as different waves is important. And the other thing is, I will tell you in this, is it gets, I think at times, as time goes on, you challenge yourself more to try different Things and to appear in different places to try to see what you what, where you can grow to because to me like some of like I feel when I was in law school and and just sort of my philosophy on client service I believe in serving the client that when I'm with the client, yes I'm in the room and I'm part of the conversation but if I do my job right I'm merely a mirror I'm actually not really I'm not it's not about me so I spend all of my energy with clients focusing on them. This part of my career is sort of a unique thing for me because there are moments of it where I can be a little more selfish and a little more ambitious for myself, which I think if you talk to a lot of women in particular, we all struggle with that. But that's been good for me overall. And, and I've had fun. I mean, and by the way, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't keep going on with this if I wasn't having fun.
0: Right. And if it didn't feel natural, of course. And it shows. There's no question about that. I have to ask the question that a lot of advisors, I'm sure, would want to ask you as well. I see you, obviously, blogging and tweeting, hosting. You just mentioned the webcasts that you were doing for clients and prospects and conferences. You'll be at our Inside ETFs conference at the end of September. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. We're looking forward to having you and actually seeing you in person, and not just a little square on Zoom, right? But I mean, how do you find the time to do all of it and still, obviously, you know, deliver the day-to-day leadership, the team of checkers needs, and all the different things that your clients need from you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard. So first of all, I always joke, don't have kids, but I think it's really important. <laughs> I don't have children, so I probably do have a few more hours in the day than working just to be candid there. I think it's a couple things though. I think that, I once heard this years ago and it's always stuck with me that the two most important decisions you make in your life is what you do and who you marry. And I feel that part of the ability I have to do what I do is I have a really amazing partnership with my husband and he is a supporter and he understands that, at nine o'clock at night, I might be trying to write something for Forbes, or I can't get home early because I've got to go tape a podcast. And and he has a demanding work schedule as well. So I say that because there is to do both the client facing and this sort of media strategy. It's finding balance. Something something has to give at some point, and not everything works in your favor at all times. I mean, I'll tell you. During tax season, I was just like, I I can't deal with the media stuff. I got to focus on return. You find those moments. But I really do think being with a partner who can understand that I'm going to work crazy hours is very helpful. I also, by the way, go to see my clients in person. And I say that because I'm on planes a lot. So when I'm on planes, I write like crazy.
0: Yeah, same here. It's been a while, but you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so you exactly. might as well make the use of the time. No, and I actually, I would also share there are a couple of advisors who are part of the original sort of FinTwit space, right? And I, I remember, you know, always hearing, how do you find the time to do it? And do you just tweet all day long? And one of the best answers I heard was an advisor who just said, you know what, I could... You send a hundred emails to every one of my clients, a hundred clients every day or every week, or I can make a hundred phone calls every day or every week, or I could write write one blog, right? And all of my clients will see it. And I think that that moment for a lot of people, and this was in the early days of social media, was was a little bit of a tipping point, right? Because it really started getting people to think about social as a megaphone and not necessarily a, an added platform so much as maybe something that you could use to just sort of substitute. For some of your existing, you know, processes and workflows or just change them so that they're a little bit more modern. So, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. And I would also just want to get a couple of your thoughts on I mentioned some of the early FinTwits. Are there other advisors out there who you admire or would have learned from, right, in terms of finding the right voice and finding the right way to position yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm lucky I get to to be between two worlds of FinTwit and Tax Twitter.
0: <laughs> is that what it's,
1: it's it, it must be. I, it's, it sounds very glamorous, although there have been a couple of times I've told clients, I'm like, well, on tax Twitter, we've been debating this and they give me an odd look. But people on tax Twitter that I want to mention, because I think it's something that the Fintwit followers should also follow. And Kelly Phillips Erb and Tony Needy, and they're both in the tax world, both inc- work with incredibly sophisticated clients. But what I love about what they do on their platform is... They are who they are. They are technical, but they want to educate and they want to help people. And they feel that by translating the world of tax in this instance, they are helping people. And as a result, I've become a better tax person because of them. What I also like about their platforms is I do find that they are good at putting just enough of their personal life in that they seem human, even though they can do these really complex tax planning strategies. So on the tax Twitter side, I think that. And then I will also say, and he doesn't tweet as much anymore, but I really like downtown Josh Brown. And I think I mentioned that that to you before privately. But Josh and I, I think, are the same age, but I like the fact that he's very human in how he runs his platform. I think it makes him likable. And I see him on CNBC and I don't always agree with what he says on everything. I like the humanizing aspect of his media strategy.
0: Definitely. And you know, with Josh, I don't even know if it's a strategy, right? It's just who he is and that's (laughs) how he communicates. And he's very genuine with what he says and how he says it, that is for sure. Just to kind of go outside the financial Mm -hmm. advice space for a second... Are there other entrepreneurs, if you look at people who were running small businesses but are now doing it at a much more sort of national or global level, are there other entrepreneurs that you admire from a marketing or positioning standpoint?
1: Oh, definitely. And I'm just I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I really think that some of the entrepreneurs or that the media brands I like tend to be one's in uh, the the interior design world. And I know that's an odd thing to say, but one of the, the, the entrepreneurs I follow a lot is Ashley Stark. And she has a, a rug company. She's an interior designer, which she does that's very clever and it's built her following and, and made her a voice in interior design, which I have a passion for, is she curates everyday images from other designers. And I love that because yeah. I... I one of the things we work in an odd industry because if you leave one firm to go to another, it's like the mafia—you're dead to someone, <laughs> and it's really hard. Like yeah. I have two firms, and I'm like, I like you people. I don't, want to be, I do I want to be friends. But what I like that about the design world is that they have this camaraderie and they appreciate the beauty of the work that the others are doing, even if it's not their client or their aesthetic. So I know that's a different media strategy to look at, but I think on Instagram, she's one of my favorite feeds.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's a good example. When you were talking a little bit earlier about financial literacy, it made me start to think about some of the altruism that's out there, especially in some of the younger advisors and planners. I remember talking to a few of the program directors at Texas Tech and Utah Valley State about the students that are coming out of their CFP programs. And they don't want to just make a ton of money. They want to help people. And I think you know what you're describing is much more of a community than an industry. And I think that there is a lot of that. And to one of your earlier points, I think we collectively just need to do a better job of telling that story. Otherwise, you know, it's the industry that everyone's skeptical about. And 10 plus years later, everybody still thinks of Bernie Madoff, right? As soon as they mm-hmm. hear the words financial advisor. So I think it takes some time. It takes a community, but you're doing a great job of, turning or helping change the narrative there we're coming up on our time here and you've covered a ton of ground actually i hope you've enjoyed talking about this because a lot of the podcasts we've had you on are really technical and i know you like both but i hope that this has been fun and stimulating for you as we wrap up is there any final or any do you have any parting words for an individual who's thinking about the way they want to approach marketing and the way they want to establish their voice anything that you would recommend for that initial starting point, that framework for taking the next step?
1: Yeah, I would tell you to write. Writing is important. Writing has made me a better advisor to clients, but writing will make you find your voice. And it's something you can continually refine and refine and refine. I just took a course with a coach to improve my writing. I think the people who blog, the people who do platforms like Forbes and Fortune and everything... I find that they are—they have a gravitas that you might not get just tweeting or being on YouTube. So my advice
0: is right. You won't hear an argument from me as an English major, <laughs> <laughs> a former reporter, author, and all that. It's—it helps organize your thoughts, and especially with a lot of the options that you have from a marketing standpoint, you can get a lot of mileage right out of a single article. Well,
1: and that what most people right need to now. remember is it's five hundred to eight hundred words. It's Yeah, that if you're not writing a book, you can do 500 800 words fairly quickly, and then just go back and edit.
0: Yep, that is very very true. And then that's when the marketing comes into play. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure that the right people are seeing it at the right time and in the right place? So, Megan, thank you very much for taking some time out to walk us through some of your history, some of your thoughts, and your philosophy around marketing. And then the final question, which I've never asked, I have to ask: What's behind the Checkers name? Ah, it's so that.
1: funny because I'm reading a biography of Clementine, I'm sorry, Clementine Churchill right now, and they tell the Checkers story. So Checkers was, I'm a history major. I'm a medieval British history major and a modern Chinese history major. So those are my two areas. So Checkers was a house in England, an aristocratic house built in the 11th century. And for 800 years, it transferred through family wealth transfer, Right one generation passing to the next. And in the early 1900s, he was British and she was American. And they were a couple had children and they owned the home. And there was something changing in society. You were having self-made men and women rise up in English society. And when they were rising up in English society to really function in society with the aristocrats, you needed a house to entertain in. So this couple donated the house to the British government, so that the prime minister, whomever it is, or whoever, another man, woman, wealthy, not wealthy, they would have the proper house to entertain in, in order to get government business done. So that's the name behind it. It's the intersection of family wealth and self-made wealth.
0: I love it. I did not know that. I learned something here today. I learned a lot of things here today. So (laughs) thank you for that. And Megan, thank you again for joining us. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I got to tell you, we didn't get to gossip about dead celebrities, but next time we can do that.
0: <laughs> next time. I think there's probably a lot of ground to cover there. That is for sure. Yeah. But on behalf of the entire both management.com and Inform and Connect team, again, thank you very much for this. I appreciate it. I hope you found this was fun and I hope our audience found this was not only fun, but obviously enlightening and has provided everybody with some really practical ways of thinking about marketing branding, and more than anything, finding that truly unique voice. So on behalf of RIA Edge, Megan, thank you again. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode here today. And Megan, we'll have to have you come back sometime soon to RIA Edge.
1: I would love it. Thank you and take care.
0: All right. Take care, everybody. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support the independent financial advisor community because they believe every firm of every size deserves a custodian that is committed and passionate. One that provides world-class resources, technology, and people who thoroughly understand your firm's goals. One that will work tirelessly to give you the winning edge. Learn more at advisorservices.schwab.com.